I invite you to turn with me uh, on your uh, worship folder there in the front. There's our scripture reading for today. We are concluding this series. This is the last of our, our look, our study here in 1 John. This has uh, been a time that we've looked at the question, uh, who God is. We've used that phrase, God is, because throughout this letter of John, there's these statements, God is statements. And as we've looked at that, we've looked at how God has revealed himself. We've looked how the apostle has written about the revelation, the nature and character of God. And then we've seen in the midst of that, we've seen how we must adjust to him. We adjust to his character. We respond to his, his actions. And as we do that, we find that our lives are in alignment with his principles. When we do not do that, when we're unwilling to adjust to him, then those adjustments that he's asking us seem burdensome. The curriculum of the Holy Spirit doesn't seem positive, but seems negative. So there's some sense throughout First John where he's saying, here's who God is, and God is immovable. And you either move to him, and you align yourself with him, or your whole life is always going to be playing catch-up. You'll always be behind. You'll always wonder, why did these bad, this happen to me and that happens to me? And, but when you begin to yield to who he is, what he's done, what he says about you, and you find yourself in alignment, things start to make sense. And things start to, to fall into place in a way that makes life ultimately very satisfying and fulfilling and and not only gives you assurance for this life, but for the life to come. So as we, as we finish up this reading in First in John, I want you to, to think about the idea of what are the first principles. The idea of the, the real principles upon which you look at everything. If those principles are true, if they're biblically sound, then you're going to be able to see things much more clearly. But if, if your principles are not biblically sound and they're not based in the truth of God, then everything is going to be somewhat distorted that you look at. Let's read this uh, passage together out loud. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this first principles thing, because this is really where John comes right back to here at the end of the passage. And, and, and basically, he's saying, that if you know these things, if you believe these things, if you value these things, then life will start to make sense for you. And these things are this, is that if you have the Son of God, you have eternal life. And if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have eternal life. If you look at the, towards the end, it says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we, in, who are, we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is first things. And the whole, the whole thing is centered around the idea of knowing here. 
He actually says, I wrote this whole letter. I wrote this whole thing so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is existing for you the ability to have a confidence that this is not all there is for you. That you, having come into relationship, a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that you can have confidence and you can have assurance. Now, that word know is important. And the idea of how you know is important. One of my favorite uh, uh, theologians to study is a Scott. His name's Sinclair Ferguson, and he was a professor for years at Westminster Theological Seminary down in Philly. And he, he tells a story about this student that, that came to him, and uh, he had carefully marked this student's paper, and there was a bright red B on the paper. And uh, the student comes in, and the first thing the student says is, why didn't I get an A? And being a Scotsman with an economy of words, he says, because I gave you a B. (laughs) And the student said, this is the first B I have ever gotten in my life. And Dr. Ferguson said, there's a first time for everything. (laughs) The student was there to get the grade raised. And so Dr. Ferguson talks about this a little bit. He said, somehow this student believed in a system and not in principles. Believed that there was a system in which without understanding, without true knowledge, you could still get an A if you just did what the professor wanted you to do. I'm sad to say that in my years I've taught from... I've actually taught from uh, elementary school all the way to graduate school now. And in so much of what goes on, we only learn for the test. We learn so that we can get a grade that is satisfactory. I've had students come up to me on the day of a final and say, what do I I need to do to get an A? I said, well, it would have been good if you come to class. It would have been great if you turned in your assignments. Uh, I mean, some of the students are a little smarter than that, and they ask you at the beginning of the class, but I've actually had students on the last day of class say, what do I need to do to get an A, when they've done nothing to deserve an A. They know nothing. They understand nothing. But because in some way they want to know, what do I do to get an A from you? See, that's not knowledge. It's not understanding. That. That's a a way of doing things that will never give you mastery over anything. Hopefully, none of our doctors learned that way. I'm glad my surgeon, when I was doing bypass, uh, knew his stuff and wasn't just someone who got passed along with an A. There are so many places in our lives where we start to realize you can't just learn and cram. You have to know it. And that's what John is talking about here. I had an experience uh, of this when I was, I was learning Spanish. Back in the 80s, uh, Lisa and I were going to be missionaries in Mexico City. Uh, I longed to be able to preach and to teach in Spanish and be able to converse in Spanish. And so I had learned three languages in in school. I learned Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but I only learned them uh, to read and and to write a little bit. I did not learn them to converse or understand a culture. But when I wanted to speak Spanish, I knew that something different had to take place. I had to learn how to not only, you know, vocabulary and spell it correctly and, uh, you know, mimic the dialogues and some... A uh, little textbook. I I wanted to be able to hear the heart of a person and speak to the heart of a person, and so I began to study and I worked really, really, really hard. And it was interesting that I started to dream in Spanish. And then I had this little battle inside of my mind because I was losing some English, like peripheral words left me. Spelling. I have never gotten my spelling back since I learned Spanish. And, and all kinds of things until I crossed over and I, I could, in my mind's eye, I could see the word in English and in Spanish without having to translate it. And I could speak in such a way for, for quite a long time that, was, that I felt like I was, uh, it was part of me. 
wasn't simply something I had learned for a test. One day when, um, it had been years since I had preached in Spanish, and one day I was, I was preaching, and I was not doing a great job of it. And I was going, Lord, this is driving me crazy that I've lost what I once had. And I, I, uh, I muddled through the sermon and uh, you know, asked for a call to response. And uh, the pastor came up to me and said, would you just ask the people uh, if they want to be prayed for for sickness or for, for problems in their lives? So I gave a call, and uh, 300 people came forward to be prayed for. And I was all by myself praying for all of these people, but something happened. And suddenly, for that night, I could understand everything they were saying. I could understand everything they weren't saying. Because sometimes it's what people aren't saying that really tells you what's going on in their lives. And then I could say everything I needed to say for the next four hours. It felt a little like Pentecost, which it is today. Where I knew phrases that I never learned. And I knew how to say things that I never studied. There, there, there's something that goes on when you entrust your understanding and your knowledge and you begin to go deeper than just trying to get by. And you begin to, to sort of throw yourself into the language of God's heart. You know, I think that night, um, I must have seen 50 instantaneous healings. I saw um, people... Um, get incredibly delivered in a few minutes. I saw every one of them get filled with the Holy Spirit in a way I'd never seen before. And it wasn't because of my skill and it wasn't because of my experience. It was, it was because when you begin to realize that there is a bigger, greater experience for you than just your knowledge and your education and your willpower can make for you, and you begin to yield who you are to him and say, what I want to know is I want to know you, Jesus. What I want to know is I want to know you, Holy Spirit. What I want to know is I want to know you, Father. And when that happens, the, that first principle launches you into his unlimited power, knowledge, wisdom, and ability. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Uh, one of my friends often says it this way. When you get stuck, all you have to say is, Theology 101, God is smart, and he knows things I don't know. And it's, it's, it's not about how much you know. It's about, really, how much you know him. And there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which many of us have wanted to know him in a cheap way instead of an expensive way. For example, um, I have this amazing relationship with my wife, 36 years. She has never allowed me to have a fast food drive-in relationship. She has always forced me, and even when I didn't want to, she has always forced me to look her in the eye, listen to her heart. She used to scare me to death when we were college students because she would never say, how are you today? She would always come up to me as a 21-year-old, undeveloped, emotionally man and say, share your heart with me. I wasn't even sure I had a heart at that point, you know. And she would go, share your heart with me. I'm like, what does she want, you know. This intensity that she had, and she's always had that, and it has always forced me to look her in the eye, to sit and focus. She doesn't allow a drive through she says, sit and listen to me. Sit and let me listen to you. And, and the truth is, what is so good about that is she values her love. She values her attention in a degree that then forces me to respect that. She does not allow me to get away with being an undeveloped, emotionally stunted male. She has called me out of my immaturity. And she's called me into a mature relationship with her. And to this day, she will not allow a half-hearted, half-ear kind of relationship to go on. She'll go, you're not listening to me, I'm not talking to you. 
That's healthy. But see, if my wife, who is valuable today, understands that that's healthy, what do you think your God thinks about half listening, half focus, half-heartedness, drive-through, let me see how quick I can get my devotions over with relationship. I doubt he thinks much of it. Here's the thing. When you value what you have and what you are, you do not give it away cheaply. And he is ultimate value. He is ultimate worth. Do you know, he doesn't share his secrets with those who cannot contain and hold and have confidence in those secrets. It, 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 let me illustrate that in a very simple way that if you look closely, you'll see. There's an interesting difference between different regions of the country, but there's, there's a characteristic here that fascinates me. Almost everyone here has a story, but they only share it with people they trust. Almost everybody I've ever seen here has a sort of hard outer shell of distrust and disbelief and somewhat of doubt. And so you, you look at people and you say, that person has a story. That person has a story. But they won't share that story with you till they are confident that you can handle it. And they're confident that you will not disclose it. You won't cheapen it. You'll deal with it well. But once people know you can be trusted, they will share all the mush in their life. One day I was at ShopRite, and I was just planning to get my groceries. And this lady looked at me, saw me, and blocked me with her carts where I could not escape the aisle. And she, she positioned it in such a way and then proceeded for 45 minutes to unpack her entire life to me. And I was like, am I going to get paid for this? <laughs> no, I was, I was like, can I get out of here? That kind of a thing. But it was... Finally, she said, I believe there's somebody I can trust with my story. And even though it was ShopRite and people were trying to get around us, she sat there for almost an hour and unpacked all of the hurt of her marriage, all of the hurt of her life, all the hurt of her family stuff. You know, there's a sense in which if you listen to that, you'll realize there's something in you that says, I don't want cheap relationships. I don't want cheap intimacy. When I tell what's deep in my heart, when I share what my deepest longings and my deepest hurts are, I don't want that person to then forget it or misuse it or abuse it by spreading it all around. I want that, that to be as treasured by them as it is by me. How much more your Heavenly Father, who is the treasure, who understands exactly your capacity? He is only going to reveal his secrets to those who are willing to sit and listen to his secrets and then handle those secrets well by valuing them, employing them, and deploying them in your life. Another aspect of this. Um, I had uh, my, first, my first job out of seminary was, was to go to the mission field to start churches in Mexico. And uh, the guy who was the team leader was about six years older than me. And my, my hope was, because we were going we to build churches together, we were going to plant churches together for 10 years in Mexico, and we went to language school together, my hope was we would become really great friends, because I like to work with my friends. I don't really enjoy working with my enemies. And so on the mission field, I thought, he's a missionary, I'm a missionary, this is going to be great. It was horrible. It was terrible. And one of the reasons that I, I found out, figured out later, is this guy had no, he had no idea how to have relationships. He didn't know how to be intimate with people. He didn't know how to share his heart with people. He only knew how to order people around and to how to get his agenda accomplished. So what I found was that I was not his friend. I was a cog in his machine to bring success to his ministry. And one of the ways that he would, he would work me is when he was, when he was uh, unhappy with me, he would pull out my psychological tests. 
There's no ahs at that moment. <laughs> Can you imagine if your husband, your wife, your parents, all they're upset with you and they bring out the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Disorder Test. <laughs> or they bring out Myers-Briggs. Or they bring out DISC. Or they bring out whatever test that your personnel department had for the mission. He has it on file. And when he's mad at me, he brings out a test and see, it says, see, this is why you're so twisted and distorted. Oh, it made me furious. Because on the, one, on the one hand, the knowledge of me, to me, is precious to me. I'm not going to share it with you unless I believe you have in some way proven to me that I can share the deep secrets of my heart and you will handle it well. He went to a test and stole my secrets. It was a shortcut. He wanted a McDonald's drive through relationship instead of a sit-down dinner. Before he hurt me. And I, I, I'll never forget feeling used and violated. With the information from my own life. It's not that the tests were inaccurate. But in my mind he had not earned the right to have that knowledge. Because he had not been through the trenches with me. He had not been through the hard times with me. He did not who, know who I was. He only knew a manifestation of my external social behavior, not my identity. And you see, there, there's some sense in which if, if you sort of understand your own way of relating and you understand what brings out the best in you, what John is saying is that when you begin to put your confidence in that which is worthy of your confidence, something happens to you. That is really powerful and wonderful. And what John is saying is that above all else, he wants you to be confident that you are in right relationship with God, that he belongs to you and you belong to him, and that you not only have him now, but for all eternity. And he doesn't want that to be a mere intellectual assent on your part or something you recognize. He wants it to be something when he uses the word no, he's saying he wants it to be something that is your experience that becomes foundation to the way you look at everything. I'll give you one more example. Are you tracking with me a little on this? Okay. I think you're being thoughtful, not sleepy right now. Okay. Let me give you one more example of this. There's this, there's this experience that took place in the late 1940s. Uh, it's one of those things that God has done throughout history. I get to be often a, a professor who teaches history and theology of the great moves of God, revivals. And one of the, one of the best is this little isle off of the coast of Scotland. Uh, the Isle of Wight, it's called, it's called the Hebrides Revival, where God showed up in... Such an amazing way. Well, there were these two little old ladies, 80, 84. They were old enough to go to the senior luncheon that we're having <laughs> next week. Okay. One of them was blind. They were sisters. They, they began to have their hearts broken for their, the people on their island as they realized there were no conversions to Christ on the island. This was a very Christian, church-oriented people. But there were no conversions to Christ. And these two ladies began to pray. And then they called together the pastor of the church and, and some of the deacons and leaders of the church. And they went to the barn and they began to pray in the barn. And they, there was, these two ladies were on a mission from God and there was no avoiding. They were, they were going to pray. And this deacon, young, young man in his 20s, I think they said, got before God and lifted up his hands to the Lord in the barn and said, your word says that uh, the only one who can ascend your holy hill is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And he lifts up his hands to the Lord and says, do I have clean hands? And the moment he says it, he gets struck. He goes, uh, we call it, you know, falling under the power of the spirit. Some people call it being slain in the spirit. The Presbyterians called it falling into a trance. Because that's mainly who Scott 
Scott's are, you know. And so he falls out unconscious after asking, are my hands clean? He falls out unconscious. The glory of God fills the barn. The ladies began to get a clear picture of what they're supposed to do. They invite, uh, they invite a, uh, the guy did get up eventually. I'm going to just tell that part of the story. He wasn't dead. Uh, but everybody began to realize this is serious. And so these ladies say a wonderful story of how they invented this evangelist to come. He actually, the evangelist's name is Duncan Campbell. He tells this story in 1969 of how then once he gets there, he gets off of the boat. He's had to go over to the island. And he gets off the boat, and he thinks he's going to go to bed. But the, the Scots are saying, you know, we'll let you go to bed in a little bit, but we're going to have a meeting first. And they have a revival meeting. And they go up to the church, which is up on a hill. Hundreds of people are there at the church. And so he preaches. It's a good night. They sing some hymns. They're about to ready to leave. And this pesky deacon stands up again. And this time he, he raises his hand to God. And he says, this is not what you promised. You promised rivers of living water. This is not what you promised. He goes out again. At this moment, everybody in the church prostrates themselves before the Lord. They all get down on their knees. They begin to call out to God. They're wailing before God because, I mean, the deacon's out. At the moment that this is going on, all the young people in the community are at the dance hall, the pub, the drinking parlors, all of this. And suddenly, all the music stops because every single one of them is affected with a something in their heart where they say, I have a sense of dread. I have a sense of eternity. I have a sense of need in my heart. They all stumble out of the drink halls, the dance halls, all of this kind of stuff. They come out, they look up, and the lights of the church are on on the hill, and they go to the church. They come into the church by the hundreds. Every spot in the church is covered with people prostrate before God. All these young people give their lives to Christ. Later on, it was, it was said that uh, two-thirds of them were converted before they ever hit the church. Just a sovereign move of God. Well, somebody gave me that tape, I'd say 20, 25 years ago. They gave me that tape, and I was driving around Atlanta, and I'm listening to this story. And I start crying so much, I have to pull over. I had to find a place to pull over. It's an hour and a half tape. I, I, I don't move till it's over. And my heart is so resonating because it went on for eight years, friends. Eight years of revival. Eight years of God moving powerfully, sovereignly. Story after story after story. Look it up online. It's still there. It's actually better than the cassette tape was because I can't figure out how to play a cassette tape anymore. But uh, my experience with it was this is my heart. I said, oh, God, let this happen where I am. Let this be what is true of my life. And I, I just, I didn't want to move till he was done dealing with me. Well, when I teach that class, I give them this tape. You know, I give them the website. I give them, I say, part of this class, your assignment is to listen to this. And I get, because he's Scottish and you can't always understand what he's saying, I give them the transcript of what he said so they can listen. Do you know what they do? They take my five questions that I ask, they answer the questions and never listen to the tape. So this thing that is so precious to me that changed my life, this thing that speaks to the heart that God has put in my heart, my students cheapen by simply answering the questions and fulfilling the assignment, which is not what I want or care about at all. You understand, if that's true of me just as a teacher, as a professor, that that breaks my heart, that I cannot impart to my students the love that I have for what God wants to do, how much does it break the heart of God? That all you do is answer a few questions, that you assent to things, that you recognize, that maybe you agree, but you never let it become your heart. This is what John is, this is why he's written these five chapters. 
is, is not just so you get some more information, but so that you will be transformed. So that you will know that you know. That you'll, you'll have this place in your soul that you know is the vault of the great truths of your life. That these are the principles upon which everything you do is based. Let me tell you, friends, it's important how you behave. It's essential that you know what you feel. But everything is based on what you know and you believe. You see, it all starts with what you value, what you give weight to, what you say, this is true and this is not true. See, once you get that settled and you say, this is truth, this is what I value, then what happens is emotions flow from that. If what you believe has value, and if what you believe is true, what will come forth are helpful, productive, powerful emotions. But if what you believe is untrue, not real, destructive, harmful, emotions will come from that. And then the behavior will match the emotions. See, harmful emotions produce destructive behaviors. Productive, powerful emotions that come from truth produce obedience. And that obedience, John says, is not burdensome. So it all begins, do you center yourself in the truth that God has worked in an elaborate way to give you confidence, to give you assurance. Now, look, look at what I mean by this. This is in this passage. John says, to know and to believe, to experience and to value is the idea. And the, the, the principal thing in the vault of your soul is, is no matter what else is going on circumstantially or relationally, financially, health-wise, it doesn't matter. These things are true and they're untouchable with you. Would you say them with me? Because this is what John has been driving at all this time. Just say these, these three together. I have eternal life. I have eternal love. I have eternal care and protection. See, if you doubt these three, harmful emotions will come forth. If you doubt these three, from those harmful emotions, bad behavior, destructive behavior will come forth. So if you just try to change your behavior without changing your belief, all you're doing is making a temporary change. But if in the vault of your soul you begin to say, I really have eternal love, then when someone else rejects you, you won't sit there and say, I must be a worthless person. I must be no good. I must figure out how to please this person. Instead, you'll go, wait a minute, I'm I'm a person of immeasurable worth because Jesus died for me. He will never leave me. He will never reject me. There's a problem with you. I mean, at some point, and I don't say this in a prideful way, but just in a matter-of-fact way, at some point, if people don't love you, that's sort of their problem because they've been commanded to love you, even if you're an extra-grace-required person. Right? I mean, everybody's sitting around. Now, please don't be obnoxious about this. But there is a truth here. There is a truth that everybody in this room is being commanded to love you by Jesus. Part of their manifestation that they are loved and that they know the love of God is they have love for you. If they do not love you in many ways, it's not because you're unlovable. It's because they're disobedient. Come on, that's pretty good stuff right there. But what it does, if you realize that, what it does is it keeps you from being a slave to them. And makes you an equal of them. So that you realize, okay, in the same way that Jesus loves me. They are called to love me, and if they're not doing that, then that's a problem in their love relationship with Jesus, not a problem in who I am. For example, I mean, does this make sense to you? Are you hearing me? I mean, 
You cannot believe the amount of trouble I have been in in the church in my life. Some of you are saying, yes, we can. Because there, there are two things that are true of me. They're going to happen no matter what. One, I have a lot of trouble with white elephants in the room. And for some reason, the church I grew up just always acted like they weren't there. But I'm the guy that goes in and says, what is that thing doing here and why are we letting it stay here? And instead of getting rid of the white elephant, they usually got rid of me. And the other thing is, I, I, I tend to be blunt. I tend to be, you know, honest when people don't want me to be honest. A lot of you say to me, you step on my toes all the time. Well, if you don't love me and you don't believe me, then you'll think I'm mean for doing that. So I have often been rejected and even run out of the church because of who I am. Now, I could change that and try to be somebody else, but in a sense, that would not do any good for you or me. Now, I have gotten more skilled at my stuff. (laughs) Older you get, you get a little smarter about when to talk and when not to, those kind of things. But I began to realize that a big part of it is I was longing for their approval when I was doing what was against their rules. Guess what? You never get approval when you're going against people's rules. They will not, they will not be delighted in you. And so part of it that changed in me is that I began to realize how loved I was by God. And then I began to be filled with that love. And then I began to realize the same thing about the people I was ministering to or prophesying to or speaking to, that they are loved in the same way. And I began to love people instead of just trying to change people. I began to, I began to see who they could be, not just who they were. And, and that those gifts of dealing with, you know, the obvious and speaking plainly and those kind of things then became words of love and not words of need. And when that happened, some things began to change. And I began to realize there's a confidence that is coming that I can love you whether you want to be loved or not. And that changed the way I felt about myself and the way I thought about myself. What John is talking about here is getting to a place where at the foundation of your being, you have a confidence, you have an assurance that cannot be shaken, that you begin to look at the world in a way that doesn't shake you, even though the world itself is shaken. And the way he says is that faith is this victory. Would you stay with me on this? He, basically, in John, I believe he, he puts forth that there are three things that give you unshakable confidence. And, and again, would you, would you hear me in this? We do not believe in faith and faith. Faith and faith is stupidity. It is faith in an objective reality, in a truth. You do not make something true because you believe it. If you believe it and it's not true, it will stay not true. I mean, all of us would like to believe we have more money in the bank than we do, but it's that amount. You know, there are things that you realize in anything where you really believe something, where you really trust it, where you have confidence, then you have come to believe there's an objective reality I can hold on to. And here's, here's the reality that John says. We've seen it with our eyes. We've touched it. We've, we know what it means. And he says, it's a historical fact God sent his son for you. This is a historical reality that your faith looks back on. Jesus himself said, this is why I have come. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. These are objective realities. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. We even believe his interpretation of that objective reality. And we believe that the apostles explain it to us in such a way so that we can relate to God. That's what we're believing. We're not, we're not leaping into faith for faith's sake. 
We're saying faith for faith's sake is a leap into disaster. It's a leap into truth and believing the truth. The second thing that comes out of this passage, and it's the way that Martin Luther understood it that helps us so much, is that when you have real faith, that a component of that faith is the trust that comes that says, because I have believed that Jesus is my Savior, because I believe that he died for my sins, I have confidence that I am now in right relationship with God. That, that the faith itself must have a component of trust and confidence that comes over you. See, when Luther discovered that verse that said, the just shall live by faith, he went, wow, why didn't I see this? What brings me into right standing with God, what gives me access to God as my father is faith in his finished work. See, faith is never the cause of your relationship. Faith is the instrument through which you receive the relationship. For example, when you receive a present for somebody, your hand has to take it. Your arms have to take it. The arms are not the cause of the gift. They are the instrument through which you receive it. Faith is like your arms. It's like the hand that receives. It's the instrument, not the cause. The gift is given. The arms take it. The hands take it. In the same way, the gift of eternal life is given by God through Jesus. Your faith takes hold of it. It's the instrument. The last one, I like this one. It helps us really clarify all of the tests that John gives in his letter. See, salvation or justification, being right with God, is by faith alone. There's no other way to God except through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way that is acceptable. But what, what... Calvin said, and I I really believe he's right, is he said, it's by faith alone, but never a faith that is alone. In other words, true faith always produces evidence. It always manifests in good works. That that there's a change of affections. There's a change of desire. There's a change of disposition where you begin to say, that which was not true of me before is true of me now. Now, maybe you say, I'm not what I should be. But faith allows you to say, I'm not what I was. Let me explain this one other way. I think this is an important one. It is possible by looking at your behavior that your conviction and your, your confidence and even your assurance can be at times unsettled or rocked. Well, there's a reason for that. When you are living out of alignment with the behavior of your new nature, then you're a mess. See, if you're here today and you've never known Jesus and you've never been born again and there's no spiritual birth in you, then you can enjoy your sin without tremendous amount of unhappiness. If you've come to know God, and the scripture says here, that which is born of God is born to overcome the world, and you've come to know God, and that nature of overcomer is within you, then when you're in alignment with his overcoming spirit, then every challenge you face, and you look at it and you go, this is for me to overcome. And even as you go through the hard times, there's a a well, a deep well of trust in his provision to get you to the other side. That every Good Friday is finished off by a Resurrection Sunday. But see, when you're out of alignment with your true nature in Christ, and when you're living in the old sin of your old nature, there is no one more unhappy than an unyielded Christian. Because listen what the Spirit does when that's going on. Paul says the Spirit is grieved. So you have a grieving, crying Holy Spirit within you while you're doing your junk. Spirit is quenched. So the very power and peace and joy that you have a right to is turned off in a sense. The access is broken. And when you, when you decide that you're going to do that which you used to do instead of that which you're called to do, then the enemy says, I'm going to accuse you. I'm going to accuse you on the basis of behavior that you don't really have a true identity. When I was in Peru and, and many years ago, and we had this all-night prayer meeting in a bull ring, really interesting place to have a 
uh, prayer meeting. 12,000 people showed up. We were there from 8 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning. We saw so many healings and deliverances, but one of the ones that was most interesting was this young woman, about 20 years old, came up to me, and she'd seen a lot of deliverances, and she said, I just want to ask you a question. She said, every time I go to worship God, I can't. I'm hindered. My heart is accused when I worship God that I'm not even a Christian, that I'm not, uh, I'm not settled in my faith. And I said, well, tell me about your faith story. And she had a very credible faith story. She had had encounters with God. She had given her life to Christ. And then it hit me. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, she's sleeping with her boyfriend. And I said, are you sleeping with your boyfriend? She started crying. Yes. And then the Lord said, she has a lot of unforgiveness. Do you hate your father? Yes, I hate my father. See, she was a believer. She had been born of God, but she was aligning herself with behavior that was characteristic of her old nature. And so instead of a continuing supply of confidence and assurance, she was becoming unsettled. Now, had God changed? Had her salvation changed? Had the basis of her salvation changed? No. But because her faith was not producing good works, then she was doubting her faith. And so we spent some time, and she got radically delivered, incredibly, uh, amazingly. She fell out under the Spirit like that deacon. And when she rose, she had had a Holy Spirit beauty treatment. All her worry was gone. All her cares were gone. She came back into alignment and yieldedness to the Lord. I looked up. There was a line of 10 more girls that I had to do the exact same thing to to that night. I prayed from 2 to 6 with those 10 young women. Saw every one of them get delivered. You understand, the confidence is not based in your performance. But when you are no longer performing according to your identity... The enemy takes that evidence and begins to ridicule you. He begins to criticize you. He begins to accuse you. He begins to condemn you. This scripture is so powerful because it says, what's the remedy for that? The remedy is the one who is born of God protects you, and the evil one cannot touch you. Now, it seems to most of us like he really does touch us an awful lot. So what does this scripture mean? Will you stay with me a minute so I can tell you? What it means is this. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used with Mary. With Mary at the garden, he says, don't touch me. But he really literally says, don't cling to me. Not don't touch me, but don't cling to me. In other words, the one who protects you will not allow Satan to cling to you. He will not allow him to become one with you. He will not allow him to take over. That that which is within you, even Jesus' spirit himself, will stand up to the wiles and, 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 and craft of the enemy and will give you a remedy for that so that you can stand up to him and say, stop this right now. But it all hinges on the last statement that John makes. It's a shame I don't have hours with you today because there's so much in this passage, but I want to finish with this one. Notice what it says, little children. So it goes back to identity. Who are we? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Little children, he says. He calls us into our identity. Then he says, stay clear of idols. You're like, you ended the letter like that? Why didn't you say little children love one another? That's what you've said all through the book. And here at the end, instead you say, keep yourselves from idols. Very simple reason, but the most important part. See, an idol is whatever you ultimately give your treasure to. Whatever you say is ultimate. Whatever you say is your treasure, that's your idol. And we live in a world, John says, where Satan has power over the whole world. So what he does is anything that is not worship of the true and living God, he counts as worship of himself. So when you make your family an idol, 
Satan says, see, you're worshiping me. When you make your job ultimate, when you make your money ultimate, when you make your health ultimate, when you make anything ultimate, Satan laughs and says, you're worshiping me. So what John is saying here, of all the ultimate things that will make your life really, truly fulfilling and satisfying, is to identify what you have made ultimate, cancel it, demote it, and then say, Lord, you are ultimate. You are the treasure of my heart. How do, how do you know that? Well, all you have to do is measure your emotions. Like someone comes to me and says, Pastor, pray for me. I'm up for a promotion at my job. I just don't know how I'll live if I don't get this promotion. That's an idol. Pastor, uh, you know, I have this girlfriend and she's, she seems like we're breaking up and I'm just not going to make it if she breaks up with me. I don't know who I'll be. That's an idol. Anything that creates anxiety in you is an idol. Anything that makes you angry in a selfish way is an idol. Even good things. And let me tell you, you won't survive with idols. They won't protect you. They won't keep you. They will destroy you. They'll destroy even the things that are good in your life. You give Satan an inch, he takes a mile. I think it's powerful when I look at it. So how did you end this? Well, you ended it by saying, keep yourself from idols. Will you stand with me? I went longer than I should. You guys always bring out length in me. I don't know what that is. The 10 o'clock, I'm good at 8.30. I'm pretty good at 11.30 because I get really hungry. But you guys, it's all your fault. Are you with me a little in this? You know, isn't it a funny thing? You get to the end of one of the books of the Bible and you want to start over because you're just starting to understand it. And it's at the end. Would you do this with me? Would you put your hand over your heart? It's a little bit corny, but Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, what's the treasure? That's what John's saying. He's saying, keep yourself from things that are not ultimate as being your ultimate. They will disappoint. They will wreck you. They will addict you. They will hurt you. But make God, make Jesus the king of your heart. Would you just say this with me? Lord, I make you the king of my heart. I choose to treasure you. What you've done for me. And what you will do for me. I'm not yet who I will be. But I'm definitely not who I was. To you be the glory. Amen. Amen. We have some prayer ministers. I really believe, friends, the Lord is taken deep into assurance today. And assurance makes a lot of difference. Would you come... And just pray with somebody in agreement that, uh, that you're going to live out of this first principle of assurance in Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next week.